Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to another Arsecast Extra, as always, with James from Gunnerblog. James, goodly morning to you. Goodly morning, Andrew. How's it going? It is going all right, thank you very much. It's, uh, yeah, I think all right. How's it going with you? I'm okay. Mm. I'm okay. Um, obviously, I did my bit for the team over the weekend. Uh, you did. Three teeth out. You did, and, and look, people who are on our patreon on our discord got a wonderful uh video of you speaking directly after the do you call it operation i think you would wouldn't you operation yeah. surgery yeah surgery. i think it's surgery yeah pretty fucking invasive and uh it looked as if you had been through the ringer so um that's what people are paying for the patreon for isn't it do you know what I mean? Like, that's the premium content people really want. That's it. If you want to see James with blood dripping out of his mouth, there's no better place to be than the Patreon. <laughs> well, the good news is I've got to go back today uh, because there's some complications. I have something called a dry socket, which is as much fun as it sounds. Doesn't so sound fun. Things are looking good for Everton on Wednesday. Well, my thoughts are Long with Long may these complications continue, <laughs> at least until May. I Look, I think it would be unfair for you to sh- uh, shoulder that particular burden all the way through until if May. If that's what has to happen, Andrew, if I have to lose every tooth, <laughs> a tooth a game, <laughs> the then thing that is, is a price I am prepared to pay. It Will, will it impact on my podcasting abilities? Very possibly. Yeah. So be it. We we must all make sacrifices. But you'll end up with, you know, eventually, you know, a set of Premier League teeth like Gabrielle. Yeah, that's that's the end game here. That's it. Just get them all out and replace them with these perfect ivory, glistening, glow-in-the-dark uh, teeth that, that, you know, it'll be worth it in the end, despite I, the... I will be Premier League ready. The pain and the agony and the bleeding and the dry sockets and... Uh, it doesn't sound good. No. Google it. It's not good. I'm, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I won't Google it now. I won't okay. Google it. I'll, I'll wait till later. Um, but nonetheless, I braved uh, Lancey and, and Leicester. Good man. It's all worth it. it Three precious it. points. A point per tooth appears to be the exchange rate at this point in time all right well um that that does make things a bit more complicated because i think i could mm. be wrong here unless you're some kind of freak or crocodile there are probably more games than you have teeth right now. how many adult teeth 32 teeth uh in an average adult mouth so i'm down to 
29. How many more wins do we need? Three How many more to points 29? do we need? 86. I don't think it's going to be enough. You, you're going to have to lose some teeth as well. <sighs> That's what it takes. But look, you go first and maybe 86 will get us there. And if we need to get over the line, okay. I'll, I'll... I'll, get, I'll lose a tooth per point until 86. And then you then can after that, it's over the me. line heroically. Right. Sweep in. <laughs> right. Well, look, we should talk about this. Um, we should talk about this game. Because it was a, a weird kind of game, wasn't it? In a way. A very strange football match, because, in my opinion. Why do you think it was strange? I mean, I think it was strange because we were well and truly on top mm-hmm. without actually playing that well. And I don't mean to do us down in any significant way or, or, or anything like that, but... You know, normally when you're that dominant in a game, you are having the, you know, really good performance, like an eight, nine out of 10 performance. Players are doing it here, there and everywhere. But I don't think that was what was happening. But we were still on top. Yeah, I, I think we were pretty good. I mean, I mean, what I'd say at the start is that I think there's a, an alternative timeline where a couple of officiating decisions go another way and Arsenal win this 3-0 and given the possession stats mm. and the degree of dominance we had on the day, nobody questions that, you know, and, yeah. and there aren't really any arguments from Leicester. Um, I think this was about as comfortable a 1-0 as you'll ever see, you know, and, and that's what was weird about it to me. So I think Arsenal were very good up until the sort of final ball or the final action. Um but what I found strange was that Leicester just never mounted any kind of threat. And, of course, you know, that's partly to our credit, but I was sort of staggered. When you go away in the Premier League, I think however well you play, however dominant you are, you anticipate one, at least one mm. 15 to 20-minute spell where you have to kind of ride it out and face a few chances and your keeper has to make a couple of saves. And it just never came from Leicester. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I I think that, I mean, there was an extraordinary stat about the XG, wasn't it? Like they, they had one shot for like point not one XG or something. Yeah. Let me get that up for you while you're, while you're still talking there. Yeah. And uh, I, I just felt that, Obviously, it's an Arsenal podcast, not a Leicester podcast. But if I was a Leicester fan watching that, I, I'm i not sure how much satisfaction I would have been able to take from it. I mean, they, they can walk away saying, well, the league leaders only beat us 1-0 and for mm. a team with a poor defensive record, you know, is that something? But I just felt they offered really nothing in the game. And to me, it looked like a, a team and also a set of fans who, as soon as James Madison was ruled out pre-game, which I do think was a really big factor on the day, I think they're a different team with, with him mm. in it. It just felt like there wasn't really any conviction or belief that they sure. could lay a glove on us. And they didn't. No, they didn't. And look, I, I, I do think we deserve a lot of credit for the way that we kept Leicester at bay. The the stat that you were talking about uh, comes from at XG Philosophy. Leicester created 0.01 XG against Arsenal today, the lowest XG in a Premier League match since we began this account. And I don't know when that account began, but I imagine it's some years ago. And you wouldn't have heard this, but in uh, on the TV coverage, you could hear one Leicester fan in particular getting very frustrated. This is like 14 minutes into the game. Listen to this. Get into it, Tete! Do something! 
<laughs> now, as somebody who has, um, you know, uh, inadvertently appeared on a broadcast in my time, you know, I'm not being critical of, of that gentleman. He was certainly trying to uh, express his frustration with the Leicester performance. But that was, like I said, it was only 14, 15 minutes into the game and you could hear the, the crowd, um, you know, they could see that Arsenal were completely dominant and that there wasn't a lot a lot Leicester could do about it or tried to do about it. And look, the thing is, when you look at the teams, when you look at the, the Leicester team that started, you know, they had Ian Acho up front. Um, Harvey Barnes was in there. They do have some good attacking players, Leicester. You know, and they took uh, Tete and Ian Acho off and they put on Tielemans and Jamie Vardy and then they put on Patson Daka. You know, so they, they did try to change their own dynamic but I don't know if it was just like a completely off day where nothing worked for them or we were so good and so well organized defensively that they just had no way of, of getting through us. I think it's got to be a bit of both, yeah. hasn't it? And, you know, Aaron Ramsdale's kept uh, consecutive clean sheets away to Leicester uh, across two seasons in the Premier League, but he, he couldn't have had two more different days, could he? Mm. Think back to last season and we won that game 2-0 actually it was a much closer game and he was required to make a number of really good saves particularly in the second half mm. didn't have a thing to do this time round and yet it was a, a narrow margin of victory a, a bit harder and like I say I, I just think we were in complete control but the scoreline mm. didn't reflect that and even heading into that final 20 minutes, you know, you're thinking, well, there's going to be a rally. Surely eventually there's going to be a rally. There's going to be something There just wasn't. And, and credit, credit to Arsenal as well. I think you're right to make the point that, you know, that that's as much to do with how we defended. And I thought some of our better players on the day were at the back. I mean, I thought, you know, Gabriel, for example, had a, a really, really, really good game. Yeah, that's true. Um, and there was a period where, you know, around 70, 75 minutes, I was getting just a little bit worried that we were looking a bit tired, mm-hmm. a little bit leggy. There were a couple of moments where I think we potentially could have been exposed. But again, the defenders on the pitch worked really, really well. I think, um, you know, across the back line, uh, the the three, I think White, Saliba and Gabriel all played very well, very solid, didn't do anything um you know, we've seen maybe in previous games has been a, a couple of little slips, a little errors, little misjudgments here and there, which can cause you problems. But there was, there was absolutely, absolutely none of that. And going back to what you were saying at the start, you know, the the officiating, which I know you love talking about, and VAR, I know, you, I know you love talking about VAR. Um, but you know, those decisions could easily have given the game a completely different com- uh, complexion. So, yeah. I mean, before we just get on to those, I suppose we should mention there were a couple of changes to the team. Leandro Trossard came in for, for Eddie Nketiah, um, playing as a, a nine or a false nine, whatever way you want to look at, at how he was deployed. Gabriel Martinelli came back into the team. Um, were you happy enough to see him mix it up? Um, I mean, I think so. I mean, Eddie played a huge amount of football. Yeah. Um, I think that's something that doesn't get mentioned. Like, he's played basically every minute of every game since the World Cup, having been, you know, essentially a bit part player until then. So I think, you know, while there's obviously going to be scrutiny on any striker, 
you know, and you look at what they contribute and how many goals they score, you know, that that, that is a physical test for a player. Um, you know, I know he's young. I know he can run around and all the rest of it. But they, he's come in, played a whole lot of football, done pretty well, all things considered. And, you know, I don't necessarily think it was, right, he's dropped as much as he's rested. I think so, yeah. And I think... I think it was something that that worked for us, and and we can come on to you know the degree to which it worked shortly. But I also thought interesting as well. Thomas Partey came back to the bench. I just wonder if in previous seasons in a high stakes game such as this, we might have felt obligated to rush him. Mm. Uh, and I liked and I was pleased about the fact that we didn't do that. Um, but other than that, it was kind of. Uh, as expected with the team. Mm. So after Villa, I think the 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 important thing from an Arsenal perspective, and I think what Mikel Arteta would have been talking about uh, before the game, is control. Mm-hmm. Because we didn't control the game, certainly the first half, we didn't control the first half well enough against Aston Villa, and we conceded a couple of goals because of that. So it was really interesting to see very early on that even though there were a couple of moments where things didn't go quite right, I think um, Shaka had a pass that wasn't great, Zinchenko, Trossard, maybe a couple of passes that weren't great, but the organisation and the discipline was there to exert complete control over the game from the very start. I think that settled us down very, very nicely. Yeah, and we quietened the crowd yeah. uh, very quickly. They didn't really make a sound, the Leicester fans, until... Uh, the VAR decision, which mm. we'll doubtless come to. And it was interesting, you know, Leicester have got these two very, very tall centre-halves, um, Sutar and uh, is it Vukfeist as well? Mm. Uh, I really don't know how to pronounce that name, but I had a good go there. And um, it was interesting, like uh, one, of the first, one of the first things Arsenal did in the game was play a high ball up towards Strossard, like in the air yeah, towards yeah. those two. And I had memories of Andreas Scharvin's brief stint as a number nine at Arsenal uh, in the midst of an injury crisis under Arsene Wenger. Fun times. But, yes. But uh, pretty quickly, I think Arsenal began to sort of you know, get the ball on the ground, control possession. I mean, in the first hour of the game, I think we had like 75% of the ball. Yeah, it's crazy. Absurd. Crazy. Because that's a, that's a sort of stat you see maybe for a 10-minute period in a game. You know, and yeah. then it sort of evens out. But like, it was just ridiculous how how much possession we had. Um, maybe there are questions to be asked about the amount of possession versus the amount of chances or clear cut chances that we had. But you know, I think um, so. Yeah, I, I I think that you know I'm trying to figure out what Leicester were doing and, and what was going on there. And you know, they'd gone to Old Trafford and threatened going forward, but ultimately been beat three nil. Their defence record is really poor mm. in the context of the Premier League and. I think they were trying sort of almost against their nature to be a bit more conservative and defend the yeah. edge of their own box. Um, and probably they'll feel, oh, we sort of succeeded in that regard. But mm. uh, yeah, I think Arsenal, it's always interesting, you know, every week I sit next to a correspondent who covers another team and our Leicester guy was just saying to me, you know, Arsenal just needs to, to show a fraction more patience in the final third. He was like, they're all over Leicester here they can't get a kick it's just literally the fight the decision making mm. in that final 18 yards of the pitch and I think that's that's probably fair I think that's probably right all right so look we get to the 26th minute we get a corner 
Um, the goalkeeper comes, punches, falls to Granit Xhaka. Xhaka plays it back to Trossard. Trossard cuts in on his right foot and scores a beautiful goal into the top corner. 1-0 Arsenal, except it isn't. Because yeah. VAR intervened because they felt that there was a foul on the goalkeeper, that the goalkeeper was impeded in making his punch. Um, I mean, what what do you think of that intervention? Because I think once, once it does decide that it's going to have a look at it, it it's, I guess, technically a foul, right? Mm-hmm. I agree with you on that. But um, we saw earlier in this very season at the Emirates, Aaron Ramsdale being literally wrestled by, uh, I can't remember which Villa Ollie player Watkins. it was. Was it Ollie Watkins? It was, right. Yeah. So Ollie Watkins. The scourge of Arsenal, Ollie yeah. Watkins. He was scourging Aaron Ramsdale all over the fucking place. And Douglas Louise scored direct from a corner and VAR decided that day that it did not want to intervene or it had a look and said, well, no, there's there's no foul there. So I know there's a wide discussion about VAR, about its implementation, about the way it's used and all of those kinds of things. But I have to say on a you know personal level, what drives me mad is the consistent shifting of goalposts with regards what is permissible and not in games of football. That's something, if, if the Ramsdale uh, thing is not a foul early in the season, then that's your benchmark, right? Should that not be the benchmark all the way through the season that, okay, we have decided that it's all right for a forward to wrestle the goalkeeper so he can't get to the ball. And if the ball goes in the back of the net, we decide there's no foul. It's open season on goalkeepers. Away you go. And everyone's kind of, well, that's what it is. But what we saw in this was something much more subtle, uh, a lot less, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, the the contact, if you want to call it that, was far less by Ben White on, on Danny Ward. But this time, you know, three, four months down the line, it's considered a foul uh, that requires a goal of that quality to be chalked off. I mean, that, it just drives me crazy. It's the same with the, you know, the, the let it flow stuff. Like, oh, you can let, you can let that flow, but you can't let that flow now because it's a few weeks down the line and we've changed our minds. Yeah. There's no I, consistency. Well, also, I, I would point out with the Douglas Louise example, you know, that's a corner kick that's taken and there appears to be a foul on Ramsdale and the ball goes directly into the net. Mm. In the case of this Trossard goal, yeah. corner kick's taken, there are a further couple of actions before Trossard even takes the shot. Mm. It's not like we score the corner. It's like the corner's cleared, Shaka lays it off, Trossard takes it inside, then puts it in the top corner. Yeah, so that's a good point as well, yeah. Uh, it is maddening, and I think, of course, it is a foul by Benoit. Like, I, I, like in the pure letter of the law, if you're going to look at the replays... You're going to be square about it. <laughs> it. It is a foul, right? And Ben White's shithousery had to be, uh, I guess, highlighted by an official eventually. Yeah. Um, but you're. But, I'm just looking at it again because the goalkeeper makes a punch. He get he goes down, gets up. He's on his feet before Shaka even plays the ball, and pff, yeah, I mean, it's just such a shame that a goal of that quality is cancelled out. Well, isn't that it? 
Like, mm. I know it's an Arsenal goal, but is that making the game better? Is that making it more of a spectacle? I just think it's really sad that, that A, the moment of goal scoring is kind of uh, so dampened down by this consideration of, does it even stand? Is it allowed? Mm. But that, B, that we're taking goals out of the game. Aren't goals the best bit mm-hmm. of the game? I mean, Tim Stillman had a little rant about this on Twitter that's worth uh, looking up on his timeline, but I, I couldn't agree more. And I, you know, I've, I've banged on about this since its introduction, but I'm just not a fan of the implementation of the video technology well, that, in football. That's it. Like, uh, and I've said this to you before, that there are times where it feels like the sole purpose of VAR is to find a way to disallow goals, not to get decisions right, but to take away basically the best thing about football. Like I was watching briefly the Carabao Cup final yesterday mm. and there was, was it the first goal or the second goal that was it checked? Was the fir- it was the first at the set piece. Yeah. And it's like, it's a cup final and everyone's just sitting there going, fuck, you know, <laughs> what well, you know, that, that surely is at odds with what sport and what football should be about. I agree. I, I think it I think it takes away from it as entertainment. I have to be honest about that. But uh, it's I, I agree with you as well. You know, it feels like people are employed to sit there, look at every goal and find a reason for it to not stand. And the, the, the threshold in those situations is different for the threshold for a defender. I mean, it, it, I don't think it was ever, it was at one stage kind of, hard written into the laws. I don't think it is anymore, but this idea that advantage should lay with the attack mm. is entirely logical, right? We want football to be an attacking, exciting game with goals, but it feels like with the video, um, it feels like the advantage lies with the defence because every time you score, there's someone looking at it to see, can we find a reason to disallow it? And then you get an incident like the one five minutes later where Bukai Saka's hauled down in the penalty area. It's like, well, that's actually not significant oh. enough to meet the threshold to, for us to intervene. I know, but doesn't it make you mad then when you think about Brentford? Like, if that's their raison d'etre, if you like, find a way to disallow oh, the goals, the fact that they utterly failed to do that in our game, it just makes you... Uh. To be fair, they, they looked for one. They just looked at the wrong reason. Oh. Um, which, yeah, I mean, obviously a man has, has paid for that with his job, ultimately. But... I yeah I, I I think it's ludicrous. I think I think the sort of the the right stance here is if that is a foul and sufficient enough mm. for you as the VAR to intervene and change the on pitch decision, then absolutely what happens to Pukai Saka yeah. in the penalty box is also a foul and enough for you to intervene and change the on pitch. One hundred percent, because that is clearly a penalty. Like there's, I don't even think I need to explain why it's a penalty. The defender comes straight through the back of Xhaka, falls on top of him. It's a foul in the penalty area. It's a penalty. Is it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the guy uh, with his arms around someone's waist pulling him to the ground. That's the reason it's a penalty for anyone who's not clear. It's crazy. And And by the way, this is a separate point, but the other reason I really dislike VAR is that I feel like it, um, when it disallows goals, I feel like it has real weight on 
games. Like, I, I, how can I put it? So Arsenal were really on top when they scored that disallowed goal. Yeah. But the overturning of the decision uh, woke the home crowd up, stopped the game for two or three minutes. Yeah. And sort of, you know, threatened to uh, disturb our momentum and change the balance of the match. And I feel like, the punishment for put the, the the consequence of you putting the ball in the opposition's net should not be a three minute interlude in which your momentum and pressure is stopped. Yeah, like the, oh, here's we're going to disallow the goal, and here's a shot of adrenaline into the heart of the home team as well. Exactly, it's like, well, we need we shouldn't have bothered really. Trust our mate, you should have just passed it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. I I, I really. Personally, I can't stand it, but there you go. Um, and this is, yeah, as clear a penalty as you see. It's just, I, d- I, d- I don't, I, if I don't know how Bukayo Saka gets to sleep at night sometimes. I really don't like. I mean, the amount of times he's kicked and fouled. Do you remember the one? Was that this season or was it last season? Where, where Tyrone Mings, in the box. It's Tyrone Mings, Aston Villa Ty- uh, again, yeah, yeah, and Tyrone Mings literally sort of has his arm around him. And lifts him up in the air and throws him down like, I mean, your favorite wrestler, James. I don't know who that is, but, you know, it's a wrestling move in the box mm. and he doesn't get a penalty and he doesn't get the free kicks he should get. And he gets he gets yellow cards when players... Do you know what? Actually, on the, on the commentary the other day, um, Saka made a couple of fouls, you know, which happens. But there was one where... He won the ball on halfway. I don't know if you remember this one. He sort of won the ball by um, reaching his leg around, got the ball, won it cleanly, was turning to go, and the referee blew to give a, a free kick. And the commentator said, I wonder is the referee now keeping note of the amount of fouls that Bakayo Saka has made here because, you know, cumulatively he could be on the, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he could be on the, the cusp of a yellow card here if he doesn't watch himself. I swear I nearly fucking threw my laptop into the TV. I actually did think he was going to get booked in this game at one point. So did he I, yeah. kicked the ball away. Um, and I thought, oh, we'll get booked for that. And he didn't. So every so often one goes for him. But I, I uh, yeah, I completely agree. And, 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 you know, we got to half time. I'm trying to think if there was uh, another sort of significant moment. In well, there the was. I, I talked about it on the blog today. I don't know if... Um, you saw it yet, but but the moment when we lost possession on the edge of the Leicester box. Yeah, we were trying to replicate the Jorginho Aston Villa goal. Yeah, it looked think. a bit like it. Looked a bit like it. And there was a break for Leicester. Um and at one point they had four on three and and uh Saka's charging back uh, along the, the right hand side or our right hand side. Saliba's there, Gabrielle is there. And then they get to the edge of our box and oh, you just see this like, it's very different from you looking at it in the press box. But on the TV, all you just see is like, ding, 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 ding. The red arrows. All these red shirts just streaming into view. And I think it was, I think that's such a significant moment in the game because it tells you a lot about this squad, this team, about what they're willing to do and how they're willing to do it. But it goes back to what we were talking about at the very start. Like, why didn't Leicester have any moments in this game? Why, when they have players of attacking quality like Barnes, Iheanacho, Jewsbury Hall, etc., etc., why did they offer so little? And I think mm. that that moment there 
is a good explanation as to why. I think they didn't play particularly well, certainly nowhere near as well as they played last week against Manchester United before it went wrong for them. But again, I think you've got to give Arsenal massive credit for for the hard work that they showed to keep Leicester at bay. Yeah, that's true. And there were a few moments like that in the game where, you know, there'd be a turnover and Mm. Leicester would break and you'd look at the pace they had on the wings and think, oh, might be in trouble here. And I think a combination of them you know, n- not having the, the killer instinct, the decisive pass, and Arsenal flooding back mm. in big numbers with it's big commitment just snuffed all of those opportunities out. Mm. Um, but w- I, I'll be honest, when we got to half time, I was just thinking, please let this not be another Brentford, another mm. VAR defined game. I just, you know, it's, it's only so many podcasts like that we can do. Yeah, that's true. We got a nice early goal, though. And um, yeah, the. The assist from Leandro Trossard was delicious. Delicious. Um, The finish from Gabriel Martinelli. I mean, the pace of his run, the timing of his run was excellent. The pass from Trossard was excellent. The finish, you know, maybe not his most emphatic, but enough to beat a goalkeeper like the Leicester goalkeeper. Mm -hmm. And um, it was kind of strange, wasn't it? Because... The the goal went in and the players started celebrating, then immediately stopped celebrating because Martinelli had, had taken a kick on the knee from Ndidi. Um, it's a bit bit of a strange goal in that sense then, because normally you're celebrating like, man, you're looking to push again. But um, yeah, that, that didn't quite happen, but a good goal. Yeah, and, and I'll be honest, you know, from where I was sat, it wasn't clear it was a kick. And I just saw a player mm. holding his knee and teammates waving medics on and suddenly thought oh god you know yeah this looks bad um i was so happy and relieved when he uh you know came back onto the field yeah i was looking at the replays going oh because at first it didn't really look like he'd taken a kick and then you see a uh an angle where it's clear ndd studs catch him on the knee and i was thinking thank goodness for that you know because if it if it had been like uh-oh, he sort of celebrated the goal, twisted his knee going down, you know, considering what's happened before with him and the amount of time he spent out with a knee injury, it would have been quite worrying, all right. True. And I think um, it, is, it is a brilliant assist from Trossard. Uh, lovely piece of control in the first place to kind of get it mm. under his spell and then a little nutmeg past the outside of his right boot through uh, Soutzard's legs. And, you know, interesting that it came from Trossard popping up on the left and Martinelli mm. making that more inside run. I mean, Trossard, I guess he did play as a false nine, but he played as a a, a true Gabriel Jesus replica in some ways. You know, yeah. he was taking similar spaces uh, to the ones that Jesus did in the first half of the season. And, and no surprise, really, that Martinelli was a beneficiary of that. No, 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 no. He did well. I mean, I thought Martinelli had a difficult first half, to be honest. I didn't think he was quite at his mm. best in the first half. But obviously the goal and his second goal in, in as many games, you know, is, is going to be a big confidence boost for him. And I do think you're right. Trossard was a bit more involved, if you like, uh, in that role. And maybe we've got a question or two that we can uh, delve into that a bit more with regards to Eddie. But we did have the ball in the net again pretty quickly. So this time the goal was disallowed for offside. Yeah, and and can I ask, in the stadium, uh, we had little, in the press box, little TV monitors. Mm -hmm. But I I saw no lines on those TV monitors. Did you get that on the TV coverage you were watching? No, did not get it on the TV coverage. 
uh, that we... I guess they forgot. They must have forgotten to draw the lines again. Yeah, it happens. Um, I, I, I mean, mean it, it, I would say we have to we have to trust that it was the right decision given it's an offside, but based on what's happened in the last couple of weeks, that seems foolish and naive of me to even suggest that. So who knows? I mean, it, it looked like his shoulder was offside. Um, yeah, I, 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 in in real time, watching on the field, I I thought it was off. Uh, and then when I saw a replay on the screen, I was like, oh, it looks closer than I mm. imagined. Um, just sort of frustrating to not have that clarity, you know? I agree. I agree. But, you know, this is the wonders of the PGMOL, I guess. Um, so we'll never know. Will we ever get the lines? Maybe we never will. Maybe we never will. I think this that is a, an interesting, you know, to go back to something we were saying earlier, though. You know, we are uh, millimetres there from a second goal, whichever way you mm. slice it. And I do think there were a couple of instances where, although it feels like we didn't have clear-cut chance in the game, we could very easily have run out more comfortable winners. Yes. Um, yeah. There was a, uh, a a threat, I believe, in between those moments, maybe it was. Uh, it was Leicester's probably best chance of the game, and actually it wasn't a shot, which was when Barnes went down the outside on the left and, and crossed to Tete. I mean, that was their moment. Yes. The yeah, I mean, that's why the 1-0 scoreline is always so uh, precarious, isn't it? Because it just takes a moment like that where the timing of the run at the back post from Tete, if it was better, you know, that could have been 1-1. Um, it would have been plenty of time for us to go on and, and respond to that. But as the game gets later and later, it becomes a, a little bit more difficult. Um, and 1-0, and you know, is a scary scoreline away from home in a season like this, even if yeah. you are on top, even if you are the dominant team, even if Leicester look like they're creating nothing, a corner, a set piece, a mistake, an accident, anything can happen in a second to give them a goal which sees your three points become two points. You only get one point per three teeth, and that would have been an absolute fucking disgrace. We would have been in big trouble then. We would have needed a lot more fucked. teeth. I, yeah, I um, I kept thinking of Manchester City last weekend and Nottingham Forest. Yes, yeah. The degree of dominance, and they had a lot more clear-cut chance in that game than we did at, at Leicester, that they exerted only to be pegged back in the final 10 minutes. I, yeah, that, that match loomed large in my consciousness. Um, what did and, you... And, you know, again, we had that situation... You know, with that we faced at Villa, where at one point I think they had made four changes. You talked about some of the changes they made, and and we'd made just one. And you know, you're sort of thinking, right, we're up against you know, nearly half a fresh new team here. But as I said, they just couldn't generate any momentum. No, not at all. But I did feel, you know, there were moments um, where I was thinking, you know what. We should really make a couple of changes here um, mm. just to give I, us a little bit more energy. Um, I think purely from a physical perspective, I agree with yes. that. Yes. You know, especially when the opposition are changing so many. I just think there is a. Yeah. It's incumbent on us to kind of match that a little bit. Um, yeah, I was sort of looking at, at, at Jorginho, who I thought you know was very good again on the ball. He's really a very good player. Mm hmm. But I think there were a couple of moments where the weakness in his game, which is sort of mobility and pace and things like that, were kind of exposed, where he was running back and he wasn't getting anywhere near the guy. So I was thinking, 
maybe you could bring on Thomas Partey for Jorginho. In the end, he brought him on for uh, for Martin Odegaard. Can, oh, can I ask you a question very quickly about Jorginho? Is it just me, or is like 50% of the time when he gets the ball, he sort of looks like he's going to fall over? Is Am I am I imagining that? Because, like, he's so assured in possession. You know, he's got great touch, great vision, uses the ball really well, spread it wide uh, a couple of times. There was a really good pass in this game as well Saka. For, for Saka. Through the lines, yeah. Brilliant, brilliant pass. But there are just moments where he receives the ball and you're going, like, if he fell over and banged his nose on the turf, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't I know, know if that's mean. him. I think it's... I wonder if it's because he receives it and maybe he receives it on the turn and because mm. he's quite a slight guy and there's often a, a bigger guy, you know, <laughs> essentially on his shoulder, it does sometimes feel like he might just kind of spin off balance. Um, mm. So far, so good in terms of not actually doing that. But I know what you mean. There is a sort of little flash of instability. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we're so used to seeing the smoothness of Thomas Partey spinning away from somebody that yeah. maybe that's creating a disparity in our minds. I thought he was really good on the ball again. I think the most telling thing actually in the stadium is if you watch the likes of Martinelli, Saka, Odegaard, when Jorginho gets on the ball, they're so alive and they so like that, you know, Odegaard's like literally pointing at his feet at times. And yeah. they really believe and trust he can find them. Yeah, there were a couple of moments when Martinelli, when Jorginho had it, and Martinelli immediately starts to yeah. to make a run to see if he can pull off the back of the defender. Um, couple, he didn't get it uh, on those occasions. But yeah, I know exactly what you the, mean. The teammates tell you a bit about what they, they think of a player. Um, but in the second half, I was speaking to Adrian Clark after the game, and he was mm. saying that he felt that Leicester stuck Dewsbury Hall on Jorginho in the second half. Mm. Um to kind of minimise his influence, and I think it, it did kind of help them a little bit to gain a, a you know, not barely a foothold really, but just mm. sort of uh, you know reduce Arsenal's dominance. Uh, but I, I agree with you. I, I think there could have been a couple more changes, and it was interesting. You know, Partey for Odegaard. Partey actually really sort of played that number eight role, didn't he? I mean, mm. it was box to box. Um, but there was. You know, I mean, apart from that one Dewsbury Hall shot, there was really no. I thought it was telling. It was telling that um, just looking back at the subs Arsenal made. Normally, I think in a one-nil situation like that, you'd be looking seventy, seventy-five minutes. Maybe you get Tierney on for Zinchenko. Maybe you get Tommy Asu on for White. You know, you see slightly more defensive. Maybe Rob Holdings out there warming up. Mm. They left the back four as it was. Tommy Asu came on in the 93rd minute for Zinchenko, you know. Yeah. I I think that speaks to the degree of comfort Arteta felt. Yeah, we did have a question about that. So if I can find it, we might as well just do it because um, I think it is. Uh, it's an interesting one. Do, 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 do. Can I find it? Uh, no. But basically, <laughs> <laughs> basically it was about you know, making subs. Maybe it was from the Discord, actually. Hang on. Uh, uh, I still can't find it, so my apologies to the person who asked the question, but it was about uh, Arteta's substitutions and maybe why there weren't more 
Do you think it was comfort? Do you think maybe what occurred to me reading the question was, I remember the game against Brighton where we were very, very comfortably ahead and he made changes and the team became unstable, I think is is a good way of putting it because Brighton yeah. got back into it. Do you think maybe there's a little scar tissue from that? Could be, could be. I think, I think Arteta often has an attitude of if it ain't broke, you know, if I'm happy with what they're doing, yeah, yeah. I don't necessarily want to disturb it. I think it's interesting as well, you know, the Arteta Guardiola thing is 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 done to death. I mm. know, but they are important people in each other's development. And Guardiola, this is something City fans sometimes say about Guardiola doesn't make enough subs, doesn't make early enough subs. He went to Leipzig in the week in Champions League and didn't make a single change. Mm. Kept 11 on the pitch. So I don't know, you know, maybe there's some shared thinking there about rhythm and not wanting to be too disruptive. I just think that the five sub rule makes that more difficult because the opposition can change so dramatically. Mm. I think you're, you're almost... I mean, Arsenal didn't have to this time, but I do think in some games you'll be kind of obliged to counter that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, hard to have too many complaints. I mean, I think Arsenal went away from home and actually I think the manner in which they controlled this match was reminiscent of some of our stronger performances, you know, maybe even from the first half of the season. I think there's been a little period of late where the games have been closer and decided by narrower margins. And although this was a narrow scoreline, mm. the degree of control Arsenal exerted, I think, was up there with with anything they've had this season. Yeah. And, I, you know, sometimes you need these wins, um, single goal wins. If you go back and look at our title winning seasons in the past, there are a lot of results like this. Wins by the smallest possible margin, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and you have to be able to grind those out. And I think we, it wasn't like a real backs to the wall effort or anything like that. Uh, and like you say, it could easily have been much more comfortable from an Arsenal perspective, but, but keeping Leicester at bay, you know, they just didn't really threaten at all. I think Mikel Arteta will be very pleased about the control that his team had over the, basically the 90 minutes in this. Um, another day, yeah. I think we score another couple of goals. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, I saw a stat from the Premier League, which is that Arsenal have now kept eight uh, away clean sheets in the Premier League this season, which matches uh, the Jens Lehmann record from the Invincible season. Wow. Um, so that's a really impressive achievement mm. to go away from home and, and have a complete shutout eight times. It's not easily done. And we needed a clean sheet. It'd been a few games, I think about half a dozen games without one. So yeah. very valuable. I'm sure the, the defensive unit would be really pleased with that. Yeah, I mean, we... we uh, I've completely forgotten what I was going to say. 100 you were just in awe in that stat, I, was, I guess, yeah, Andrew. I think that's what it was. Speech Rendered speechless. I was going to say, I remember now. Um, I mean, we needed to win, obviously, because Manchester City... I mean, the chances of them slipping up two weeks in a row against a team in the bottom half of the table were, you know... I was not optimistic. Neither was I. And as it turns out, <laughs> uh, as it turns out. Within I about 20 we minutes, right. it was very clear 
this was not going to be one of the, the, the good days in terms of City's response. But, you know, what a lovely feeling mm. to have the three points on the board and not really have to worry about that. Um, well, that's it. Yeah, yeah. You get your job done, do your work, go home, get ready for the next one. Um, and, it's, of course- and speaking of the next one, mm. the next one's huge. We've talked for so long about, well, we've got a game in hand and it's here. Mm. It's this Wednesday. It's against Sean Dyche. Mm. Opportunity to go five points clear. Big, 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 big game. Big, big game. Big game. All right. Is there anything else from the weekend or from this well, game that you I, want to mention? I mean, there are there are a few things. Go on. Uh, well, there's the League Cup final. I don't know how much notice you took of that. Not much. Um, one of those where there's nobody you really want to win because Manchester yeah. United never want them to win because of, well, obvious reasons. Newcastle what they are, what they're going to become, how they're going to become that. No, thank you. So I don't want them to have any success. So I suppose in the grand scheme of things, my give a shitometer is at a very low level on this one. Uh, and the other thing was there was a, a another London derby um, mm. this weekend. And... I did have a few requests of people saying, could we read some Potter out tweets? Um, I've got I have a few. got I've, a few I've if you're interested in them. Yeah, go on. I've got a few as well. So. Oh, have you? Yeah. Okay. I mean, listen, no one likes to see Spurs win, but... No, nobody. You know, there's a funny... Look, the side. thing is, yeah, the funny side is Chelsea fans are furious. They're going absolutely fucking <laughs> they are crazy. They so cross. And I look, I want to distance this from Graham Potter himself, who seems like... Very nice man who's been on the end of horrendous abuse, apparently, from uh, Chelsea fans, which is completely and utterly unacceptable. Um, but, you know, you don't win football matches. You're going to get hashtagged. Yeah. Uh, so this is I enjoyed this one from a Chelsea fan called James. I wasn't Sarri out. I wasn't Lampard out. <laughs> I wasn't Tuckle out. I am Potter out. I like this one from Borga. I'm not going to read out the full names, but he says... What's happening to Chelsea is not funny anymore. Potter is not only ruining Chelsea, but the entire English Premier League and that of UEFA Champions League. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is from Chelsea fan Hashim. Bowley, you made a mistake. We can move past that. Fucking sack him. Two (laughs) wins in 16 games. Tenth, joint with Villa. Villa! Clueless manager brings on Ober when two nil down. He is fucking shit. <laughs> Gets Potter out now. He is ruining us. For fuck's sake! <laughs> uh, Hitanshu says hi at Chelsea FC. If you worry about your fans, then please take hashtag Potter out now very seriously. This is not how I want to be treated when I wear my club's jersey. Hashtag Chelsea FC, hashtag Potterball, hashtag Potter out. And this other one as well was quite good from uh, Heisenberg who says, Potter is going to be the death of us all. Skull emoji, hashtag Potter out. There's a few good ones here. This one, this guy's Twitter username is just Potter out, so he's fully on board. <laughs> we don't want any fucking process. Hashtag Potter out. <laughs> uh, there's someone here who's called Tyo who's just posted a picture of Graham Potter and said, "This is what disgrace look like in football." 
Hashtag Potter out. <laughs> um, I also enjoyed this from Ace Flame. Potter out. You are absolute disgrace. Embarrassed, disappointed, absolutely disgusting. Have emotion on people and leave. <laughs> this was my favourite. We'll go in. We'll do one more before we go into the break. This one is, uh, again, they've changed their name to hashtag Potter out. It says, the fans are starting to turn their anger towards you now, Todd Bowley. Sack Potter soon, or face the anger of the fan base that'll soon explode. Use the fans' eyes and listen to the fans. What the fuck happened to that? Hashtag Potter out. Use the fan. You, you want to use, use the eyes, fans' but eyes, use, but use your own ears and listen to the fans. To listen to the fans as well. Amazing. No wonder the clubs in a mess if they're using their eyes and to listen. And oh, oh man, fun times. Poor old Graham Potter. Long may it continue. I feel sorry for Graham Potter in a way, but you know, this is you do, do deal not, with the devil. Do not feel know. sorry for Chelsea. I'm, you know, I will not <laughs> apologise for that. They can, of course. Go fuck themselves. Um, Shall we take a break? Yes, let's do it. All right, we'll take a break. We'll be back with your questions and more in part two right after this. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does, they charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's a brand new year, and what better time to get going with that online store you've been thinking of. Those I was there when Arsenal actually scored a goal t-shirts would fly off the shelves right now. And to get yourself up and running, you need Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way through to the did we hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort with thanks to Shopify magic, your AI powered all star. Sign up for a $1 a month trial period at shopify.com slash arsblog, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash arsblog now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash arsblog. Welcome back to the Arscast Extra. This is part two of the show where we answer questions that you send to us on Twitter at GunnarBlog and at Arsblog. Also on the Arsblog Discord chat server, which you get access to if you are an Arsblog member on Patreon. I should just say that today, this very day, is the 21st 
birthday slash anniversary of, of arsblog.com. I wrote the very first post 21 years ago today. Holy wow. shit. Amazing. Arsblog is as old as Bukayo Saka. That's a nice way of thinking about it. It is. Makes you feel young. It does all right, because Arsblog being 21 makes me feel pretty fucking old, James, I have to say. <laughs> Congratulations, 21 years. Yeah. It's a big birthday. It is all right. I did uh, the big things for the 20th last year, so there's no 21 podcasts this year. I'm sorry yeah. about that. But, but you can uh, drink in America now. That's that it. Long? I think. That's it. Um, and look, just to say thank you to everybody who listens and to reads um, and consumes everything that we put out on the site. Um, it's, uh, I can't even begin to tell you how much we appreciate it. So thank you very much. And um, yeah, raise a glass to our spog, have a bit of cake, whatever you fancy um, uh, for 21 years. Right. Let me ask you this one because I saw you tweet about this and Ali on Twitter, who's at it's spindle says, what did you see between Saliba and Gabrielle? The pictures I've seen show them smiling. I just mm. wondered how it looked live. Yes. Well, it's interesting, you know. So I, I uh, was obviously there in the stands. And from what I could see, so I was behind, uh, I was sort of on Gabrielle's side. But mm -hmm. obviously, you know, they're a long way away. But what I saw was some at full time, some uh, expressive discussion, what I would describe as remonstrating. Gabrielle was pointing like to the right side of the pitch. Like it, it was clearly in my mind, a reference to something that had happened in the last few minutes on the pitch. Mm. Maybe I've got a vague memory that maybe Saliba put the ball out for a throw in, in sort of vaguely dangerous territory or something like that. And Saliba gave a little push away to Gabrielle. Um, and I think, to be fair, even in my tweet, I was like, it's probably nothing, mm. you know? And then Sky, I think, the following day, like, dug out the footage, right? Yeah, um, I saw that, yeah. It looked like, was it Saliba jumped on Gabrielle's back or something? Or? Saliba jumps on Gabrielle's back, which I hadn't seen, you know, in celebration, and then... There's a bit of an exchange, but there are some stills as well doing the rounds where Saliba is seen to be smiling and in good spirits. So I guess the reality is like, we won't really know. And when it came to the post-match press conference, I was like, oh. I mean, I, I could chuck the question at Arteta of like, oh, there seemed to be a bit of an exchange between two of your players on the pitch. Mm. You know, do you know anything about that? And, but the thing is, he would have said, A, I didn't see it and I don't know about it. And B, something like, you know, this is normal. It happens in dressing rooms. This is a sign of a team with high standards. We know all mm. that stuff. And I think actually when United won the Cup yesterday, I think there was something after the game with Casemiro um maybe having a go, not having a go, but sort of, you know, talking to Bruno about uh, something that had happened on the pitch that he wasn't happy about. So mm. it's just football, isn't it? I mean, if I had to guess at what went on, we know what Gabriel's like. He's an incredibly uh, motivated and driven and fired up. And it seems a bit like he had a point to make with Saliba and Saliba was like, chill out, mate, we've just won sort of thing. I mean, right. I mean that seems to be the long and the short of it. We, But who knows? It's guesswork. Yeah. 
Well, look, I, things like this happen, you know, uh, all the time. Stuff you don't see that happens in the dressing room, um, on the training ground, you know. I, I think you I think you only need to look at how we played, um, referencing the commitment that we uh, talked about in the, in the first half of the show to see that this is a, a dressing room that's very, very together. Even the, the issue of the captaincy, for example. Yeah, where, that was a really nice touch. Yeah. Think. You know, Martin Odegaard wanted to show his support for Alexander Zinchenko and for the people of Ukraine by giving him the armband, a small gesture in the grand scheme of things, of course, but it's just really thoughtful, I think. And it shows you that sort of the characters in this dressing room are the right kind of characters, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, so and I those two worry. in particular are, are very close, you know, like Gabrielle is Saliba's big mate in the club mm. um they're close on the field and they're close off it too so i really don't think there's anything to worry about mm. um i did sort of keep an eye on them during the celebrations to be like you know are they going to have a little cuddle and, and <laughs> make it up but they didn't sort of really cross each other's paths again after that but i'm sure by the time they got back in the dressing room all mm. as well and you know, this comes off the back of like a season where we've watched all or nothing. We've seen the team come back into the dressing room and Granite Shaka or Aaron Ramsdale, whoever it is, say, you know, that wasn't good enough. We should have done this better. We should have done that better. That's just football. That's just, that's what these people are like. Yeah. Um, they're highly competitive, highly motivated, very demanding of each other. Saw so Odegaard, didn't we, on the, on the pitch? Um, lose lose it with Sambi a little bit. Um, you're mm. going to see instances of that. But. Well, yeah, even Ramsdale last week where he talked about how this was the worst way to win the game against Aston Villa that we all really enjoyed because of the we politely the high disagree drama. Because yeah, of the hilarious own goals <laughs> yeah. by Amy Martin. But you know his standards were listen. We can't let two goals in in the first half. Um, so I think that that does say a lot about the the motivation of the players and and what they what they expect from themselves and each other. I just remembered I had an insane dream. Go on. I had a dream that I had to audition for a new TV series where I was auditioning for the part of Aaron Ramsdale's dad. <laughs> And I was like, I need to get one of those hats for the audition. The fez. Yeah. And I was like, where am I going to get one of those hats? <laughs> Fucking hell. Down to the hat district, obviously. Yeah. And I was like watching All or Nothing for a search. That's math. <laughs> that was last night. Real worlds collide. Uh, for sure. Kind of subconscious moment there. Um, right. So, yeah, I think we've put that to, to bed about the, mm. the post-match round. I, I was Speaking of all or nothing, mm -hmm. I did think this was interesting. John Foster on Discord said, Goodly morning, chaps. Did you see Potter's comments on all or nothing? I think he's got a point. Apart from the squads the managers inherited, <laughs> apart from the squads the managers inherited, the signings they made in their first windows and the results which they achieved, it's an almost identical situation. <laughs> uh, but did you see those comments? I I saw the headlines. I didn't Sure, really you go. saw the tweets. I saw the tweets about it. Um it's interesting, isn't it, how Arsenal have become uh, sort of a byword for trust 
and process and having faith in a manager. You know, you see it cited quite a lot. Well, if you look at Arsenal, mm. you know, Mikel Arteta lost quite a lot of games and now they're top. Therefore... Yeah, I mean, we did have um, we did have another question on similar lines on the Discord from Spicado, who says, not exactly Arsenal-related, but Conte and very recently Potter have both talked about Mikel getting time from the owners before he eventually succeeded. Is that a dangerous precedent to set for other clubs, as more time definitely does not mean success or doesn't uh, definitively mean success, I think he's trying to say there? Will there ever be a culture shift of not sacking managers very early during their tenure? Well, dangerous for who? I mean... Well, I mean, for other... For other clubs. For other clubs, like, you know. I mean, I mean, Arsenal were right to keep faith with Arteta, but that's because Arteta is an exceptional coach who had a very... Uh, singular vision, I guess. Singular vision to see through, and there was a real commitment to a clear, coherent idea and project. I think if you have that in place then by all means, stick with it. Mm. I think the the situation where it gets tricky is where you have a club who don't know where they're going, who don't know what they're doing, who don't have a coherent transfer policy uh, or a vision of you know what their squad should look like. If you just stick with a manager in a situation like that, that's potentially just pure blind faith and could backfire pretty spectacularly. Um you know, there. If Arsenal had had a different manager in the dugout during that difficult run at the end of 2020, mm. I'm not sure it would have been the right thing to stick with them. But their knowledge and understanding of, um, and their faith in the man they had appointed, is what made that the right decision. You know? uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think what you would say as well that it's probably easier to back a manager when, as a club, maybe you've hit a kind of rock bottom, which is yeah. sort of where I think Arsenal were, or certainly in a very difficult place following the departure of a manager like Arsene Wenger, who'd been in the job and at the club for so long and whose influence was everywhere. And then Unai Emery, who came in, did his best, but it didn't work. And he was, you know, the, the wrong man at the wrong time. When you basically have to press the reset button, I think it's I think it makes sense if you be, if you believe in the manager if you believe in his talent and his ability to to create a winning team right which clearly the people at Arsenal did and they showed faith with him during some quite difficult times for someone like Graham Potter it's it's quite different isn't it because Chelsea are not um in that kind of position they've gone out and spent 600 700 million pounds on a whole load of new players in the last eight months, nine months. So it's a completely different scenario for for them. Um, like, I'm not giving them any advice because they can, as I said in the first half, go fuck themselves. But I, I do think that I, I kind of understand where he's coming from. Like, if you go into a job, if you're Graham Potter, you go into a job, you know, it's a chance to manage a, a you know, uh, much as I hate to use the phrase, Chelsea are a big club because of what's happened in the last 20 years, right? Um, he saw that as an opportunity for him. But he's come in and he's, is it possibly the most unstable squad 
in the sense that, like, they just keep bringing in new players and new players and they bring in more players than they need. And, mm. like, it must be very difficult to work with a squad of that size. I'm not making excuses for him, but, like, his work environment must be absolutely nuts. Yeah, I mean, one of the major criticisms of him is that he's changing the t- team substantially every week, but he's got about 30 players there. Yeah. So it's almost incumbent on him to try and keep some of them happy. I do have some sympathy with this position. I think I think actually, almost rather than just sticking with a manager, irrespective of what's going on, I think maybe the most interesting aspect of what Arsenal did is kind of this idea of the fallow year. I think Miguel Delaney wrote quite a good piece about this, but the, the 2021 season for Arsenal, you speak about a rock bottom. Mm-hmm. But I think, uh, you know, you can also look at it as a season where Arsenal said, well, look, we're limited in terms of what we can do at this point in our trajectory. And we've got players on our wage bill who we can't sell. We're not in a position to spend lots of money to bring people in. And I think it would be wrong to say they wrote that season off, but there was an acceptance of, you know, maybe we have to take a step back to go forwards. Mm. And if you look at, everything that's followed that season since and the degree of change and renewal and um, the positive momentum it's brought to the club. Mm. I think that's paid dividends. So I think, I I think clubs would be wrong to think they should always stick with a manager, but I do think sometimes you have to say, you know what, this isn't our season. This is a true transition year and something we have to go through to get where we want to be and Mm. I know that's incredibly difficult for fans to accept especially you know in the short term week to week if you're paying for tickets and watching games but it worked for Arsenal in a big way Mm. okay it's interesting though Mm. Um, what about this I thought this was really interesting Rob Hack said on the discord have you noticed we're wearing our home kit in away matches more frequently of late? In 2023, we've worn red away at Tottenham, Man City, Everton and Leicester. Our black kit has only had one appearance this year at Villa, where red isn't an option. Mm. Do you think this is a ploy by Arteta to grow the identity that is so important to the team's confidence? That is a good question. I have literally no idea. Same. I have no idea either, but I have noticed yeah. that we do seem to be wearing red more frequently. Because they're, they're, when I think about it in the context of certain games in the past where we have worn, let's say, our third kit, and the reason we're wearing our third kit is not because of a clash between our away kit or even our home kit, but because... I don't know if there's a contractual obligation or there were con- contract, uh, contractual obligations to do that as a sort of like market the, the third kit, you know? Mm. But it wouldn't be a surprise to me if this was maybe deliberate, you know, get in red and white as much as possible because that's that's who we are. That's Arsenal. Um, I like it. Let, I'll be honest, yeah. whatever the reason, I, I'm always happier seeing an Arsenal team red and white, as lovely as that away kit is. Yeah. It'd be maybe a, an interesting question to pose to the club. I don't know, yeah. like, what the decision is. I know, it, like, it's down to color clashes and short clashes and stuff like that. But did we wear, did we wear red and white at Everton? We did, didn't we? 
And they have white shorts. We have white shorts. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. One to keep an eye on. And yeah, I'll see if I can dig something out. All but right. Yeah, let's see. Let's find out. Okay. Um, let me ask you this one. Lombardo on the Discord says, Goodly morning, guys. I had forgotten how stressful a title race can be and how hard it is to cope with as it's been so long. How has your coping mechanism changed from the last time we challenged, seeing as we're all just a little bit older? <laughs> yeah. Um, it is stressful, isn't it? I mean, mm. I didn't find Leicester as stressful a game as some. Uh, because, you know, I, I do think we, we did have that sort of stranglehold on them. Um, I can't really help with coping mechanisms because I'm pretty bad. Like, I'm pretty bad. I, you, you remember last season, me mm. having to walk out of my seat um, and go <laughs> for a walk around the concourse. We've been close to that a couple of times this season uh, already. And we're not even into the proper running yet. I've got all sorts of weird superstitions that I'm doing in the press box where oh, really? when the opposition have a set piece or a chance, I have to like touch the table a certain amount of times. I mean, honestly. Is I, it, you're not alone. Look, uh, do, do you want me to tell you my superstition of the, the season? Yeah. Is uh, the post on arsblog.com that, that advertises or that, that gives you the live blog for every game. I spent the entire season up until the Manchester City game scheduling that post for exactly 48 minutes before kickoff <laughs> because it was working. Yeah. It was working. And then well, it stopped working. Well, I had to text you that I had a bad feeling about the game every <laughs> game for about three months because that kept working. And it's nonsense. It's all nonsense. Of we course. have no control. We don't have any control. So my, I can't give anyone advice, you know, because there are times when, you know, I'm watching and I realize I'm, I'm extremely stressed about what I'm seeing. Like the corner that we got in the 94th minute and Thomas Partey, of all people, just played the ball straight into, into the Leicester box to a Leicester player. I was like, well, what are you doing? Well, I was shouting out loud. The dog's looking at me going, what's fucking up with this guy? And, you know, you just kind of have to grind your way through it, unfortunately. The, the, the thing that I would say that will, I don't know if it will be any comfort to anyone at all, is that I just much prefer it mattering than being in a kind of mid-table position where the result isn't going to have a significant impact on your season one way or the other. Like I know last season, the reason it hurt so bad missing out on top four was because we were going for top four, but that's better than like going, well, Jesus, I hope we don't finish seventh because we're going to have to go into the UEFA. What's it called? Crappity Cronk Conference League. The cr it's the Conference League. The yeah. cr Crappity Conference League. You know, um, this is, this is the, this is the flip side of all that I just want, you know, I want my team to be good again. This is this is the consequence of that. You have to deal with the stress of a title race and it is uh difficult at times, but to swap it for something else, I don't think so. 
No. All, all I can tell you, by the way, on this and sort of how much the game-by-game game stress is getting to me is that I went to Leicester um, and I got home about nine o'clock at night and uh, I was home for about an hour just, you know, chatting to Camille, ate some food or whatever. And uh, after about an hour, I went, oh, um, Arsenal won, by the way. And he, she went, uh, oh, no, I, yeah, I know that. I can just tell from your mood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. She didn't need to ask. It's very clear if we've won or we haven't won. Yes. Yes, I'm sure there are many households uh, in the Arsenal world who know exactly what you're talking about there. Yeah. Um, okay. What about this? I've got to say, I thought this was interesting. Obviously, I thought it was interesting. They're all interesting. I wouldn't pick them. Um, Haider, <laughs> uh, who's at Haider Javed underscore 14, says, there hasn't been much spotlight on our disciplinary improvement. We had four Premier League red cards last year. And I yet to receive one this season. What do you put this down to? Better dealing with emotions and overall growth and maturity? New signings? Mikel Arteta? I mean, I think probably a focus on that because we did pick up a lot of red cards under Mikel Arteta. Problem. It was a problem. You know, certainly some of the results, some of the poor results that we had, some of the defeats that we had or games we didn't win were directly a consequence of, of red cards. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's probably a combination of greater focus on the disciplinary aspects of the game with the improvement of the team being better, which gives us more control, which means that there is less desperation in some of our defending slash um, dealing with the opposition. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Um I just less think stress in games, basically. Yeah. Less physical and emotional stress, I think, on the players. Yeah. And it's a you know, it's a more mature team together. Some of the players who maybe have been a little bit um prone to red cards are not there anymore. Um mm -hmm. and yeah, I just think it's part of the part of the development. It's something that he was asked about plenty of times, wasn't he, Arteta? So he um you know, he's obviously worked on that with these players and, you know, long may it continue throughout this season. He's made some smart managerial decisions as well. I mm -hmm. think of, you know, Ben White coming off on a booking against Manchester United at half time. Yes. Um, I think he, there's been an awareness to, uh, in him of we need to keep 11 players on the field. And I think uh, some of his substitutions have reflected that. Mm. Maturity, as you say. But I think crucially just... If you can control the games, you know, with the football, if the game is within your control, then you're less prone to losing control, as it were, individually. Sure, sure. Okay, here's here's one from Jack Rice, who's at that Jack Rice. He said, I really liked Trossard starting up front. And for the most part, I think it worked really well. I liked how we came out to the left in central areas or how he came out to left in central areas like Jesus, like we were talking about. Um, considering how much Eddie struggled against Everton, would you start Trossard again on Wednesday? I mean, what do you what what do you think Mikel Arteta will do? I think is a a better way of yeah. framing that. I mean, I guess it's, this is a similar question just from the Discord from Closto. He said Arsenal dominated possession and locked up the back against Leicester, allowing 0 0.02 expected goals. But what they couldn't do was turn all of that possession into many big chances. Keeping in mind the busy schedule, what changes would you make for Everton at home? Mm. Will get us clicking and incisive in the final third. 
I did like the Trossard thing. I thought it was the most successful iteration of the False Nine uh, Arteta has had. You know, unless you sort of are counting Jesus as a, a False Nine. Mm. You know, he, he tried Willian there before. He tried Smith Rowe there before. I thought this was. I thought Trossard did really well. And to be fair, he looked like a guy who's played that role quite a lot for Brighton, which he has. Um, mm. My hunch is that Eddie will come back in. I have to say, despite how good Trossard was, I think. I, I think Eddie will play. I, I'm not 100% sure on that. I'm not okay. 100%. I think, I think Trossard's been unlucky, obviously unlucky with the goal. Um, I thought he was really good against... Um, who the fuck? Who did we just buy? Leicester. I thought he was really good. So my brain is like, fuck. Um, 21 years. 21 years. That that's <laughs> I thought he was good. I thought he was, if not a bit unlucky to be subbed off, I understand, understand why that change was made because it's kind of the easiest change to make, isn't it? Striker for striker or forward for forward. That is mm. kind of the easiest change to make. And, um, you know, there was some talk of Eddie maybe carrying a bit of a knock as well. I just have a maybe a gut feeling that, that he might start. But if there was a change in the offing for the Everton game, it might well be Partey back in for Jorginho. Yeah, that's a good shout. I mean, I think Jorginho has been um, really pretty good and looks like it was a very sensible signing, which, mm -hmm. we, which we hoped it would be. Well, he and Trossard, I think it's fair to say that both yeah. of them in the January window weren't people's first choices, but they've turned out to be extremely useful. And I don't mean that to be in any way uh, denigrating of them, you know, to say, well, useful. But I mean, I think in, in the context of this season and the players that they've had to come in and replace, they've been just really very useful players to have. And yeah, therefore, I mean, good if signings. I told you maybe even earlier this season that we'd have to go, you know, away consecutively in the Premier League without Thomas Partey starting and we take six points, I think, you know, mm. people would have found that maybe even a struggle to believe, I think, you know, mm. he's, he was sort of seen as that important to us. Um, and I agree, Trossard's been good. You know, there was involvement in the winner against Man United. There was the goal against Brentford, which by all rights should have been a winner. Mm. Um there was obviously a, a goal which we wish had stood against Leicester and then a brilliant assist as well. Uh, I, I, may, I may be forgetting other moments from him. Um, he could start. He could start. I mean, we know what Everton are going to be like. We know it's a Sean Dyche team, you know, big, tall centre-halves, a bit like Leicester in some respects, most likely a, a, a back four as well. Could Trossard be the guy to pull them out of position and create space for Saka and Martinelli. Maybe, maybe. Mm. And Eddie's, you know, an option if if needed later in the game. I agree with you that Partey will play this match, though. I just think where Everton won the game was, you know, or at least made it hard work for us was in the middle of the pitch. They won it on a set piece, but the way in which they counteracted our midfield was critical. And they went with a very athletic physical approach um, and to be fair Party didn't have a, a great game that day as I recall but I think he's better suited to dealing with it than mm. 
Um, I think it's close on the striker, though. I, I, I think it's... Yeah, it could go either way, but I wouldn't be surprised at all to see... Um... No, nor I. And, and, you know, you could make the case that the Trussell substitution might have been partly with that in mind. Can, can I follow up on that one with this question from Donorona at Donorona UK, who says, Are Arsenal good at transfers, or have we got a bit lucky recently? They wanted Mudrick for huge money, but Trossard feels a better signing for what we need now. Martinez was wanted, but he can't do what Zinchenko does. And I'd rather have Jorginho than Douglas Luiz. It's interesting, that. It's a really interesting question. Funnily enough, I, uh, I wrote a piece for The Athletic and the headline is Arsenal good at transfers. And uh, far be it for me to take my editors to task, but that's not really what I was saying. I was more saying that mm. I think Arsenal deserve real credit for um, the way in which they reacted to the setbacks they had in January. And I think that the way in which they pivoted mm. and the speed and efficiency with which they did that is really quite impressive. And mm. we're seeing, as you just suggested, the dividends of that on the pitch now. Um, I, I think we can already say, it. you know, we might not quite be where we are without those two additions. Uh I think they've really, really, really helped and been necessary. Mm. Is it luck? I mean, I think luck is pro luck is probably a little bit strong, but mm. sometimes things just work out a different way. You know, you've got one plan; it doesn't work. You've got to go a different way, and maybe you know, in the short term, it works out a little bit better. Like, it's not it's not luck because they've identified good players who can come in and do a job. So that's not luck. But, you know, we could be, for example, in the in the depths of a big discussion right now about Mikhailo Mudrik and about his lack of readiness for Premier League football at this point in the season, at a point in the season where we needed the players that we were bringing in to come in and have an impact. I'm not saying Mudrik won't be a good player for Chelsea. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. But, you know, that's realistically a discussion we could be having right now. We could be saying, fucking hell, James, you spent £100 million on a player in January and he can't fucking make a pass. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, to be fair to him as well, yeah. maybe he would be faring better at no, Arsenal I, I, than he yeah, is yeah. Chelsea. I think that's a fair point. But you know what I mean? That that's yeah. not uh, beyond the realms of possibility. The 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 benefit of buying plug and play Premier League players midway through a season mm. is enormous. I mean, there's been almost no adaptation required for Trossard and Jorginho, and that's hugely beneficial. Um, I was thinking about this this morning, funnily enough, and I was thinking how. I do think it's a very compelling narrative, this idea that Arsenal, you know, the second choice player has kind of worked out well mm. um, in a number of cases. But I was sort of thinking, well, aren't all transfers in a way second choice? Like if a club had their, if Arsenal had their first choice, it would be uh, Kylian Mbappe, Erling Haaland and you know, mm. whatever the defensive equivalent of that is. And uh, Pedri from Barcelona or whatever. Let's say yeah, they're yeah, the first yeah. choice, but for every club. But every deal you make 
is a compromise from the ideal, mm-hmm. right? And I, I, I think, you know, even these top targets that we talk about or that are reported or that, uh, are, you know, part of the conversation around Arsenal, there was probably somebody before them. But it was like, but of course we can't get them or it's yeah, not yeah, attainable. Yeah. Or So I, I just think that the, the pool of players is big and it's just about being smart in the selections that you make. And I, I do think that Arsenal have been very adept in terms of recruitment. I know there are questions over sales and rightfully so. And that, and that is one of the big things that needs to be addressed moving forward. But if you look at the consistency of the recruitment department in recent seasons, I think it's really good. I think you have to go back to like probably 2020 and maybe the signing of Willian to say there was a signing that definitively was a failure. Um, I, yeah, and I think what what's what's been clear certainly over the last couple of years is that there is a definite strategy, and this ties into what we were talking about early on about having a reset. You know, that gives you the ability to think more medium term than short term in the business that you do. And over the last, you know, the previous years, maybe the end of the Arsene Wenger era, certainly during the Unai Emery era, it felt like there was a short-termism to too many of the deals that we did or that mm-hmm. the deals were being done in a way that that wasn't aligned across the club, if you like. So I know we've talked about this before, but the Pepe, the Pepe one, you know, when, when Unai Emery requested Wilfred Zaha, he got given basically the opposite player. You know what I mean? He wanted a right-footed winger to play on the left who, um, uh, you know, had lots of Premier League experience, et cetera, et cetera. Instead, he got a, a guy from France who was left-footed who played on the right, um, you know, who ultimately never really fit into Emery's style and certainly not Arteta's style. So it feels like the thinking is much more joined up now, and that makes it easier, I think is maybe the right way, easier to do good deals because everybody is uh everybody's on the same page i think that's true and i think also what this january shows i think we've sort of added another string to our bow because you know the thing of going out and signing players who are under 23 with you know big potential Mm. arsenal had really executed that strategy effectively um and everyone was very on board with that and some worked out better than others but uh being able to then complement that with experienced players who come in and make immediate impacts and just bolster the squad, mm. that's another very useful type of deal to be able to do. And I think Arsenal have demonstrated that most recently. And, and you know, occasionally Arsenal's detractors will say, well, you know, it's not fairy tale. They spent a lot of money. Mm. But what I would always say back to that is, that's true, but who spent it better in recent years? Yeah. I don't think there's another club out there who, you know, look at the mess at Chelsea, how much money they've spent, and we're yet to really see any kind of tangible return on that. Okay, it's early days, but Arsenal went out and spent money and in some circles were ridiculed for some of the fees they paid. 
But I think at this point in time, you look back at what they did and what they continue to do. I don't think, mm. don't think there are many other clubs who make smarter signings. And that's why it was frustrating when people said, well, why don't these big clubs go and do what Brighton did? You know, Arsenal's, Arsenal's recruitment strategy has been really strong and really intelligent and it's worked. Mm. And, and I think as fans, we obviously ask for more. We want to see the sales come in and I, I'm on board with that. But we should also give credit where credit is due. Like we were a team that used to make quite, questionable signings mm. and I think that that sort of belongs to a, a previous era at this yeah, point yeah. in time I think that's fair I think that's um, fair so 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 yeah we sort of covered that I had a question about uh, <laughs> I, I just liked this Tom Gooner just uh, said early signs are that I've never been as wrong about anything as I was about Jorginho and he, he included a a screen grab of a tweet from him saying signing Jorginho would be a repudiation of everything Arsenal have done well over the last couple of years. I cannot believe we'd be stupid enough to sign another Chelsea reject. I refuse to believe there's anything in this story. <laughs> uh, it's big of him to own. Um, sure. And then he said, can you think of any other players who've exceeded expectations more after joining Arsenal? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Ramsdale is a, is an obvious one, I think. Yeah, um, certainly when in in terms of the pre-transfer chatter versus the reality of him as a player, yes. Um, yeah. The Jorginho one's fascinating because, you know, Ramsdale, you could speak to a Sheffield United fan or a Bournemouth fan who would say, ah, oh, no, he's got ability. You know, he's an interesting prospect, mm. good player. But Chelsea fans were absolutely sick of Jorginho, <laughs> by and large. A lot of them were, anyway, by the time he left. Were they? Yeah, um, I mean, that comes direct from your Chelsea-supporting brother, well, I guess. Well, he was very divisive. Like, he was kind of their shaka, where right. he had his defenders, and there were people who really thought he was important to the team. And there are people now who say... We let Jorginho go and look what it's done. You know, you didn't appreciate him when he was here. Um, but there were equally people who were like sideways passing merchant, never scores, never gets assists. Mm. Uh, you know, what does he really offer? Um, which from where we're stood, and certainly where I'm stood, seems like quite an unsophisticated appreciation of the player or assessment of the player. Sure. Um yeah, I, I listen. It's early days for him as well at Arsenal, but he he has certainly uh, won round, a f you know, or come close to winning around a few hearts and minds. I think in his mm. first few games, I like this one as well. Um, from Mary had a little Ramsdale. This was this is, he says this is not an Arsenal question, just a concern about player welfare. He said, little children constantly pull away from the grip of their parents. Therefore, <laughs> given he could not pull free from Ben White holding his hand, should Danny Ward have urgent tests to investigate why his arms are weaker than that of a small child? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, what I would say is Ben White owes Leandro Trossard a pint, really, doesn't he? Because I reckon if he doesn't do that, Listen, I've seen Danny Ward enough times this season to think 
I'm not sure he's catching that anyway. Yeah, that he'd um, make the same punch whether he was being held or not. Kind of, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I think Ben will probably reflect, I probably didn't need to hold his hand. <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, it, it, good question. He was Very just much. trying to, you know, make just a connection be, with a fellow a pro. Lonely in the penalty box. Yeah, know? exactly. You know, we're here for comfort. It's a small, It's a small place to be in a vast universe, you know? I agree. You need to find that human contact somewhere. Uh, let's just do one more. Um, before okay. we go, I will ask you this. Uh, Jmart91 says, what game do you see as the Emil Smith-Rowe comeback game? It feels like Arteta's waiting for the right game to bring him in, whether it be in the starting 11 or, or off the bench. And, you know, mm. when we were talking about subs earlier, you know, I was thinking maybe the last 15 minutes is a is a good time for for Emil Smith-Rowe to come in um, and get a few minutes under his belt. I had it been two or three nil, maybe he would, you know. I, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, is that really Emil Smith-Rowe on the bench or just a sort of uh, very lifelike replica we've created mm. uh, to bring along with us for morale? Maybe so. I, I do think it's really interesting because if you fast-forward... A few months or even a couple of seasons because we actually saw it on the pitch. Emile Smith-Rowe was the guy that Arteta would talk about as, well, he can play as a nine. You know, we, mm -hmm. we have that option. But when you're faced with a player who's not played for months and months and months or a guy who's in a regular rhythm of Premier League football and has contributed substantially to Brighton and, and already Arsenal this season in Trossard... Mm with the stakes as high as they are in the title race, you sort of can't afford the risk on a, a meal. And, and you can't really, there's not an obvious game to be like, well, here's some, here's some minutes. I mean, I, I guess the answer is the Europa League. Mm. I, I, I think, I think he'll, he might play. At sporting, but even that, I'm not sure about. Uh, if we if we can get ourselves into a comfortable lead against Everton or Bournemouth this week, which is not beyond the realms of possibility, as long as uh, keep having molars extracted. Yep. Um, then I'd love to see him. I'd love to see him. Uh, I'd love to see him get 15 or 20 minutes. Mm. What's your gut feeling on it? I mean, I think you're. You may be right. If it had been a two-nil scoreline, he might well have given him some minutes, maybe in the in the Shaka position, or yeah. indeed maybe in the in the Odegaard position as well. Um, it would have just maybe given him a different option. Could have brought Partey on for Jorginho, and then you can put uh, Smithrow on for for Odegaard. I think it'll just yeah, it'll depend on on game state. Um, if we're winning comfortably, there's there's time uh, for him. If we're looking to chase a game, then he's got the quality to come on and do something from the bench as well. That's true as well. Yeah. But, uh, but I mean, admittedly it was a week ago, but we were in that position at Villa and he didn't come up. It, it, it's, mm. it's just interesting because I think Arteta likes what Trossard's giving him at the present point in time. And he likes increasingly, I think he likes what Vieira's giving him. Very, very emphatic in his praise about Vieira on Friday uh, in the press conference. Uh, and I, 
I just think it's that they're all competing in similar positions, but two of those guys are match fit. Yeah. And that makes it hard for Smith. Right? That, that was the point I was just going to make because it's been quite some time since Smith Rowe has played 90 minutes in a game. I'm just looking at, um, just looking at the stats. I mean, he obviously hasn't done it this season. When and we is... haven't dropped him down, have we, to play a 21s game or something? No, I mean, that's that's a little bit of a surprise. But mm. maybe they're just trying to be cautious with him, get him reintegrated into the group, you know, feeling part of things, being on the bench, being part of the match day and everything else. The last time he played... 90 minutes in the Premier League was, oh, that can't be right. Oh, no, it's not. Um, no, I'm looking, I'm looking. 90, in the, 94. 90, 92. I was thinking about it. But, Crystal uh, Palace. Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace on the 4th of April, 2022. So like 10 months ago, basically. Maybe nearly 11 months ago considering we're at the end of February I mean, right yeah, now. I don't know when he last started a Premier League game because it feels um, like Martinelli and Saka have had that sewn up this season. I think, was it maybe Did he get Manchester United in April as well? So... He's got yeah. some fitness to build before... He really has. And I was thinking about it over the weekend because obviously Leicester was one of the grounds he scored at last season. Um Got the second goal mm. in a 2 0 win. And he was just flying at that point in time. He's a really good player and he could make a big contribution. There is a long way to go mm. between now and the, end of the season, but that is the challenge. It's like, where does he get the minutes to build the rhythm he needs? He gets 10% more fitness for every toenail you have pulled off with the pliers. Right. I'm sorry to tell you this. It's just been announced. Oh, uh, okay. So. I'll give it some thought. <laughs> we've got good cover for the moment. The thing is, we've got Vieira and Trossard, so... <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a limit. I think there is a limit to how much we can ask. All right. Um, I think we better leave it there. Get this part out for people to listen to. Uh, as ever, thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here, for your support, downloads, and all the rest. Catch us on Patreon a bit later on for an episode of The 30, reviewing all the weekend's Premier League action. We'll have an Everton preview podcast for you tomorrow as well over on Patreon. For now, take it easy, and we will catch you on the next one. Bye-bye. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.